audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. Well, here we are in session 19 of our series on Luke Acts. And today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15. Uh, This is an event commonly known as the Jerusalem Council. Last time, we were looking at Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, If you remember, we had our map. Uh, So Paul started out in Antioch, city of Antioch of uh, Syria, and went through um, Crete and up into Asia Minor, and then back again. And Antioch was kind of like his his headquarters, his home base uh, for all his journeys. Well, today we're going to follow Paul on a journey, but it's going to be a journey in the opposite direction. This time Paul's going all the way down to Jerusalem, which is way down here near the bottom of the map. That's that's, uh, quite a journey for him. Paul and Barnabas are going to make that trek. Uh, Acts 15 in some ways represents the heart of the book of Acts. This chapter, uh, in this chapter, the apostles and elders gather together to discuss the role of Gentile believers. And uh, as I was mentioning just before we started recording here, it just so happens that I recently completed a thesis on Acts chapter 15. So this passage has been a matter of close study for me for several months now, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean I've got everything right or I know everything about it or anything like that, Uh, but I believe that a compelling case can be made concerning the role of Torah in Acts 15, and we'll we'll be looking at that a little bit as we go on. So, and uh, hopefully this will be edifying and helpful along the way and not not just interesting to me. All right, so we're going to start by reading the first half of Acts chapter 15. And then we're going to talk about some of the important issues of interpretation, uh, the role of circumcision. We'll talk a bit about these four prohibitions that show up in the chapter. And uh, we'll see what how much time we have for other stuff to dive into. Okay, so to start... Uh, Could I get a volunteer to read Acts 15? We're going to read verses 1 to 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep 
to, for them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all of the assembly felt, fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Excellent. Thank you. So in this chapter, there is a dispute going on. Um, if we go back to the opening verses, we have these people, two different groups of people bringing forth a particular position. I'm going to call them the circumcisers. They're the ones who want to see the Gentiles get circumcised. Um, so let's look at what, what, what it is that they're proposing here. In verse 1, these teachers from Judea are in Antioch. So, so notice how, um, going back up to verse 1, they came down from Judea to, where did they come to? Well, you have to read the end of the chapter here, uh, end of chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas come back to Antioch, their HQ, right? And they're gathered with the believers there. So these are men from Judea teaching in Antioch, okay? So they've come down from Jerusalem because in biblical thinking, you go up to Jerusalem, and anywhere you go to from Jerusalem, you're going down, right? Even if you're going north. So on, on our map, it looks like you're going up, but to uh, Luke, you were going down to get way up here to Antioch. So these guys from Judea, Judea is here around the city of Jerusalem, went all the way up to Antioch, and they're teaching what are they teaching? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
right? And then Paul and Barnabas uh, are butting heads with them. And finally, they get sent down to Jerusalem. And it talks about how they went through, um, uh, they went on their way, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria and eventually came to Jerusalem. So they're, they're coming south, heading south, they pass through Phoenicia, which is this area right, right here. Tyre and Sidon are like the major cities of Phoenicia. And then through Samaria, which is this region here, and then all the way to Jerusalem, which is in the province of Judea. Okay, so, so that's where, where they're going. So in verse 1, th this is the position, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You have to receive circumcision in order to be saved. Verse 5, we get a different group of people stating a similar but slightly, perhaps slightly different position. We'll weigh that out in, uh, um, in time. It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the Torah of Moses. Okay, so these are, this is the position of the circumcisers, right? All right, and this position is at odds with that of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, so the question is, what is at stake here? Is the issue circumcision? Is the issue Torah? Or is it both? Let's keep that in mind as we proceed. Uh, the apostles and elders, uh, they meet to discuss the matter, and they end up deciding firmly on the side of Paul and Barnabas. They, they're, they're fully in agreement with Paul and Barnabas's position. Uh, and the conclusion of the council is that Gentile believers do not need to be circumcised. Instead, James concludes that the Gentile believers are to follow these four prohibitions. He gives them these four rules for Gentiles. They are to abstain from food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from strangled things, and from blood. So this event, Acts 15, is a pivotal event in the narrative structure of the book of Acts. Uh, we've been building up to this moment, and this is going to be a watershed for what follows. The problem is that this, this chapter has caused a lot of uh, scholarly debate uh, about a couple of important issues. And unfortunately for us modern readers, the uh, Luke's account is admittedly abbreviated. He's, Luke is not going into some of the details that we really wish he would have gone into. Uh, you know, these are pro uh, probably things that his readers would have known, he would have taken for granted, but here we are 2,000 years later, and we're left with a lot of questions. And, um, a particular thorny question is where where did these four rules come from? Like, what, what, are, what are they? What is their purpose? Why did the apostles decide on these four? And those sorts of things. It's, it, seems, it seems like a bit of an odd list, to be honest, right? Like, um, okay, you can see how avoiding idolatry and sexual immorality, those are big things. But what's this strangled things and blood? 
right? Is this talking about bloodshed, avoiding like killing people? Or is this talking about avoiding eating blood? Uh, it's probably the latter. And I'm going to argue it's definitely the latter, but that's a strange thing to throw into this list that otherwise seems like a list of moral stuff. But then we have this weird, odd one here, strangled things. What, what on earth is that talking about? Um, and there have been dozens and dozens of different uh, ideas and proposals put out about what this might be referring to. Okay, so... Um, a big question that we want to tackle here in this series, you know, uh, going back to our three main focuses of this series, we're focusing on uh, God's, uh, God's people, God's plan, and God's precepts, right? So God's people, Israel, the church, how do we navigate all that? Is Acts presenting a new people of God that replaces the old? Um, God's plan? Is this throwing out Jewish eschatology and bringing a new eschatology where it's uh, all spiritualized and there's no literal kingdom? And God's precepts. What is the role of Torah? Uh, as traditionally understood, Acts 15 represents the apostles' rejection of Torah. And Gentiles aren't supposed to keep Torah, they're just supposed to keep these four rules. And it's interesting that in mo among modern interpreters, uh, most Christians think that they don't even have to keep these four rules anymore. Um, and in my opinion, there is a, such a strong aversion to rules among certain branches of Christianity that they're even uncomfortable saying these four rules that are the four that specifically apply to Gentiles, uh, they... Some people are to say, well, that was just temporary. Those don't apply anymore. Uh, I'm going to suggest that they were not meant just as temporary rules, and we'll look at that logic uh, behind them as we go. Okay, so at the risk of overgeneralizing, we can say that there are two primary positions on the role of Torah in Acts 15. As I said, for most of Christian history, uh, Acts 15 has been read as demonstrating that the Torah no longer applies to followers of Jesus, Jew or Gentile. So followers of Yeshua are not under the law, they're under grace, therefore the Torah doesn't apply. So along come these circumcisers saying the Gentiles need to be circumcised, they need to keep the Torah of Moses, and the apostles say no they don't. And you know, all that Torah stuff that's been done away with, remember Peter had that vision. We don't need to follow any food laws anymore. Of course, it's ironic that the four prohibitions, of the four prohibitions, three of them are dietary. <laughs> so it doesn't seem like there are no, there, it doesn't seem like there's no place for food laws anymore. Um, anyway, so, so, but this is the traditional approach. Acts 15 demonstrates that the Torah no longer applies. And uh, related to that is the role of circumcision, as we'll see. Circumcision no longer applies, so the Torah no longer applies, and the two go together. Uh, more recent scholars, however, have argued that Luke Acts sees tor the Torah as have going ongoing, the Torah as having ongoing validity for Jewish believers. 
Um, we've been drawing on a bit of that scholarship throughout this series and noting that um, more recent scholars are realizing how pro, just how pro-Torah Luke Acts really is. And so uh, as many interpreters have noticed, there's no debate anywhere in Acts 15 over whether or not Jewish believers should be circumcised and keep Torah. The issue at hand is what to do with all these Gentiles, right? So at the, you know, for them to debate what Gentiles are supposed to do, uh, that debate would be moot if everyone realized, uh, hey, we Jews aren't supposed to keep Torah either, right? So, uh, these, these interpreters will say that Acts 15 assumes the Torah applies to Jewish followers of Jesus, but not to Gentile followers of Jesus. So they're going to say that in the eyes of the apostles, the Torah is just for Jews. Gentiles are supposed to follow a separate or smaller set of laws, i.e. the four prohibitions, right? So Jews keep Torah, Gentiles keep this small set of laws. Um, this interpretation has been common among people who hold to uh, the Paul within Judaism perspective and uh, some of the more recent interpreters of Luke Acts. And it's also made some big headway in a lot of Messianic Jewish circles. So organizations like UMJC, uh, you read Mark Kinzer, for example, he's going to interpret uh, Acts 15 in very much this way. Uh, First Fruits of Zion have a very similar approach. Acts 15 uh, makes the Torah obligatory for Jews, optional for Gentiles. That's kind of the way it's been understood. Um, there are a lot of different nuances in there. My interpretation is riding off of this scholarship, but I'm arguing something a little different here. Um, I'm suggesting a third position, and that is that Acts 15 offers Gentiles an entry point into Torah observance from which Gentile believers were expected to grow in their observance. Uh, it does not lay out the maximum of Torah for Gentiles. It does not distance Gentiles from Torah. On the contrary, it brings Gentiles closer to Torah and uh opens the door for them to embrace more Torah than just these four rules. Um, so that's gonna be what I'm making a case for. Uh, before we do that though, before we dive too much into uh, defending that, we're going to have to look at the role of circumcision. Okay, so older scholarship, on Acts 15, sees it as the basis for the Christian rejection of circumcision, right? Jews practice circumcision, but Christians don't because of Acts 15 and Paul, right? Because Paul says you shouldn't and Acts 15 says you shouldn't, and uh, therefore you shouldn't. Um, that's, that's the traditional uh, Christian interpretation. And so these, this older scholarship sees in this a, a fundamental rejection of Torah, since circumcision is a commandment of the Torah. By rejecting circumcision, the apostles were rejecting the Torah. That's the logic behind that way of interpreting Acts 15. 
Of course, there is a problem with that way of interpreting this. Uh, not there are several problems, <laughs> not least of which is the fact that throughout the rest of Luke Acts, all the references to circumcision are overwhelmingly positive. Okay, let's look at some of them. We have, first of all, the circumcision of John the Baptist and the circumcision of Yeshua. Luke is the only gospel to mention explicitly Yeshua's circumcision. It's implied by the, the other gospels. I mean, he's Jewish. You'd think he would have been circumcised, but Luke goes out of his way to mention it. He emphasizes that point. Um, the circumcision of Isaac in, in Stephen's speech, if, if you remember back in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is giving his speech, he's addressing these accusations that he's teaching against Torah, that he's teaching against the temple. And, and what does he do? His speech is a, a emphatic affirmation of Torah. Uh, he, he goes out of his way to mention the co covenant of circumcision that Abraham received. He goes out of his way to mention that Isaac was circumcised on the eighth day. And uh, so this is... Uh, affirmation of the role of circumcision. The circumcision of Timothy. Okay, this is a big wrench in the whole anti-circumcision interpretation. In the very next chapter, I mean, we, we just get through Acts 15 and up comes Acts 16 verse 3 and suddenly there's this, Paul is circumcising someone. So if Paul was really anti-circumcision, as some interpreters have assumed, What's he doing circumcising Timothy? And uh, we'll, we'll get into that. But the, the point that's interesting about Timothy is he's not even fully Jewish, right? He's half Jew, half Gentile, which in the eyes of uh, first century Jews, does that make you a Jew or a Gentile? Well, it makes you a half Jew, half Gentile. <laughs> that's what it makes you. Um, there are people that are going to try and argue, oh, but because his mother was Jewish, he would have been considered Jewish. That's why Paul circumcised him. Well, that's not entirely clear. As far as we can tell, the idea that having a Jewish mother makes you Jewish, it comes much, much later in uh, the rabbinic era. Uh, we don't have any evidence for that in the first century. But regardless, the point is that Timothy was, was at best a marginal Jew, right? And so if Paul is even willing to circumcise Timothy, Whose, whose Jewish identity is, is quite questionable, uh, how much more would he be willing to circumcise uh, those who are born as full descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? In Acts 21, 21, uh, there's this rumor, which is a false accusation going around, and James and, and, and Luke emphasize that this is false, and Paul goes on to demonstrate through his actions that it is false. The rumor is that Paul teaches Jews not to circumcise their children. What's the implication? If that's a false report, then that means Paul does teach Jews to circumcise their children, right? So once again, we have an affirmation of circumcision. So every reference to circumcision outside of Acts 15 is overwhelmingly positive. That makes it unlikely that we should interpret Acts 15 as being an anti-circumcision event, right? It would, it's out of character with the rest of Luke-Acts to interpret it that way. 
Okay, another point is we need to look at the laws about circumcision in the Torah. So there are three places in the Torah where the Torah actually gives commandments concerning circumcision. We have Genesis 17, where God gives this initial covenant of circumcision to Abraham. Um, and this is the first time circumcision appears in scripture. We have Leviticus 12, verse 3. And then we have Exodus 12, 48. These are the passages that speak of uh, circumcision. Um, and uh, there's another verse in Exodus 12 uh, that talks about the circumcision of slaves, but we won't uh, uh, tie ourselves up with that for right now. Um, let's take a quick look at some of these passages because we're trying to deal with, what, you know, what's the logic behind the apostles saying Gentiles don't need to be circumcised? What's, what's going on here? Uh, well, let's see. What does the Torah actually say about circumcision? Genesis 17, starting in verse 9, um, God says to Abraham, you'll keep my covenant. I'm just going to skim through this so we won't read the whole thing. And this is the covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Uh, here in verse 12, he is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So um, the uh, <laughs> short way of putting it is that in, X, in Genesis 17, the emphasis, the, the commandment is to circumcise two types of people. Number one, infant sons who are born in your house. So, so you, you have a son, on the eighth day he is to be circumcised. Uh, the second commandment is slaves at the time of purchase, or if they're born into your household, um, they are to be circumcised. Uh, where here does it say that adult male Gentile believers who want to follow the God of Israel should be circumcised? It, it doesn't, right? There's no specific commandment in this passage. I mean, like taking it at face value, maybe you could read into it by saying, you know, every male among you, uh, meaning, well, even if uh, someone later decides to join the community as an adult and they weren't circumcised as a kid, then they shall be circumcised. Maybe you could read that into the passage, but it doesn't say that explicitly here, does it? And What's significant is that some first century Jews or late second temple era Jews specifically read this as applying only to infants on the eighth day, infant males on the eighth day. Um, they saw adult male circumcision as invalid. It's, it's too late. If you're already an adult, it's too late to get circumcised. You're supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, that's it. That's how, how some Jews of the Second Temple era understood this passage. Um, if you uh, want more details on that, I go through some of that in my thesis. So uh, when that comes out, you can take a look. Okay, the next passage is Leviticus 12, verse 3. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So when you have a son, when a woman gives birth to a son, 
it go, talks about the periods of impurity that she goes through. And then on, it mentions that on the eighth day, the son shall be circumcised. So again, nothing here about circumcising adults. It's, it's only about uh, circumcising infants, right? Okay. Uh, those are the, the two big passages that give commandments about circumcision. Then we have this third passage, Exodus 12, verse 48. If a stranger, here it's the Hebrew word ger, if a ger, a, a sojourner, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. Um, it it's a bit ambiguous the way this says it, but v'asa uh, tesach uh, l'adonai is literally like to, to offer the Passover sacrifice to Adonai. This is not talking about the feast of Passover in general. In fact, if you back up a little earlier in this chapter, it specifies that uh, sojourners have to abstain from leaven. Doesn't say only if they're circumcised. Whether or not they're circumcised, a sojourner has to abstain from leaven. But in terms of eating the sacrificial meat of the Passover lamb, he and his males have to be circumcised. Then he may come near and and do it, mean like offer that sacrifice, eat that Passover lamb. Uh, he shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All right, so uh, this passage or th this verse could be taken. It's possible if you wanted to, <laughs> to take this as saying that any sojourner who wants to worship the God of Israel has to be circumcised. It's not what the passage says, but you could imagine someone interpreting it that way. And there were people, uh, there were Jewish people in the first century who did interpret it that way. But that's not the only way you could interpret this passage, right? You could also interpret this passage as merely stating what it says, that a sojourner who wants to partake of the Passover lamb has to be circumcised in order to partake of it. And this, the same rule applies to Jews. A Jew who wants to partake of a Passover lamb at the temple also has to be circumcised. There were instances where, for health reasons, uh, a Jewish baby was not circumcised. It, it happened on occasion. It was rare, but it did happen on occasion. Those Jewish males were not allowed to partake of the Passover lamb, but they were allowed to partake of all the other elements, right? You can still have the matzah and the bitter herbs, these other aspects of Passover that are commanded in scripture, but the Passover lamb is off limits if you're not circumcised. Okay, so my point is that there's no explicit commandment in the Torah that says an adult male, non-Israelite, who wants to follow the God of Israel has to be circumcised. And this was a debate among Jews in the first century. Is it a commandment incumbent upon adult male Gentiles or not to be circumcised? Is that a commandment incumbent upon them? And I believe that's precisely the debate that's going on in Acts 15. Right? In Acts 15, we've got these teachers from Judea and the Pharisees arguing that it is a Torah commandment for adult male Gentiles to be circumcised. Uh, the apostles decide, no, it is not. So what, what's at stake here is not whether or not to keep Torah. 
do we have to bother keeping what the Torah says about circumcision? No, the point is, how do we interpret what the Torah says about circumcision? And I would argue that the apostles interpreted these passages in such a way that it is not essential for an adult male Gentile who comes to faith in Yeshua to become circumcised. There's no specific Torah commandment for them to do that. Now, granted, in the Second Temple era, so at the time of Acts 15, a Gentile believer who is not circumcised would not be allowed to eat a Passover lamb, right? Uh, but the vast majority of these Gentile believers that we read about in Acts, they don't live anywhere near the temple. They're in the diaspora outside of the land of Israel, right? And most of them probably would never even have the opportunity to travel to Jerusalem in their lifetime. So in terms of Passover celebrations, they'd be able to partake in Passover to the same extent that all the other diaspora Jews do. Uh, you, you know, diaspora Jews would not go to Jerusalem every single year for Passover. Some of them might only go once in their lifetime. Some might not even go at all in their lifetime. So the same type of Passover Seder that they're keeping in the diaspora is the same type of Passover that these Gentile believers could keep. And since the temple has been destroyed, of course, all Passover seders are without a lamb. Okay, so in the late Second Temple era, circumcision began to be used for a new purpose as a rite of conversion for Gentiles to become Jewish. This was an innovation in Judaism. Uh, the earliest evidence we have for this use of circumcision is from the second century BCE. In other words, you know, a Gentile who's like attracted to the God of Israel, it became an option where you could uh, receive circumcision and thereby become a Jew or Jewish, right? Uh, even if you're not a Jew, you'd be Jewish. <laughs> uh, not all Jews accepted the legitimacy of this innovative use of circumcision. That's not the purpose of circumcision in the Torah uh, for a Gentile to turn into a Jew. And, and some Second Temple era Jews uh, contested this use of circumcision. And in fact, in the book of Jubilees, for example, we see this emphasis that only eighth day circumcision is, is covenantal. Only eighth day circumcision is valid. A Gentile who gets circumcised as an adult, all he is is a Gentile who got circumcised as, a, as an adult. He's not a Jew. Uh, there's uh, one particular scholar, his name is Matthew Thiessen, Incidentally, he's uh, this. He teaches at McMaster University, and he is one of the professors I'll be studying under there. Um, he's written extensively about this and argued for this uh, uh, this fact. Uh, he and he's argued extensively that Paul and the other apostles rejected the imposition of circumcision on Gentile believers, not merely because they thought it was unnecessary for, a gen for Gentiles to become Jews, but because they believed it was impossible for a Gentile to become a Jew. That puts a different spin on Acts 15, if we read it through that light, realizing that this, this was a debated issue in their day, right? Um, Perhaps it was a minority position that the apostles op opted for, but uh, 
by rejecting circumcision, this is not the same as rejecting Torah, right? It's perfectly possible for a Gentile to follow the God of Israel and even follow Torah without being circumcised. A Gentile believer who remains uncircumcised would, like I said, not be able to eat a Passover lamb, but he would still be able to keep the festivals and follow Torah. Uh, so to try and sum up what we've been talking about with circumcision, the circumcisers in Acts 15 believed that circumcision was necessary for adult male Gentiles, but Paul and Barnabas disagreed. The disagreement is not about whether or not to follow Torah, but about how to interpret Torah. Like some other Jews of that era, Paul and Barnabas held to the position that the Torah does not require adult male Gentiles to become circumcised, and the apostles and the elders agreed. Okay. So we've talked about circumcision, uh, which is a big issue for interpreting Acts 15. How do we understand uh, the apostles exempting Gentile believers from circumcision? How does that work? Um, and I've argued that that, it, that can be understood as fully in line with what the Torah itself says about circumcision and non-Israelites. Uh, uh, non-Jewish uh, uh, non believer coming to the faith as an adult. There's nothing in the Torah saying he has to be circumcised. Now, that believer might choose to then circumcise his children in obedience to the Torah commandment about circumcision. Uh, but that's a different matter, right? And um, not something that's uh, directly addressed by Paul or Acts 15. That's not what they're concerned about. They're not concerned about Gentile believers circumcising their infant sons. They're concerned about um, these adult male Gentiles being pressured to go through this procedure that would not benefit them uh, because it's supposed to be done on the eighth day, right? All right. So another big interpretive issue here is the four prohibitions. Uh, just to refresh, here they are. Food offered to idols, sexual immorality, strangled things, and blood. These, the, this list of four prohibitions show up, shows up a total of three times in the book of Acts. We, had, we already read it in Acts 15, verse 20. Shows up again a little later in the book of Acts. Or in, in, in chapter 15, and then it shows up again in chapter 21 of the book of Acts. So there is a lot of debate as to what exactly these four rules are, what they mean, where they came from, why were they picked. So here's, here's the big question. Why these four rules? Isn't this a strange list for the apostles to come up with? Why did they come up with these four? We can divide that question in two. What is the source of these four rules? And what is the purpose of these four rules? So wh where did the apostles get these four rules from? And what were they intended to accomplish? Um, there are four common interpretations among scholars today as to the purpose and origin of the four prohibitions in Acts 15. And let's go through them. So some scholars argue 
that their purpose is to enforce a clean break with idolatry. Um, one of the most prominent proponents of this viewpoint is Ben Witherington. He argues that it's, it's all about idolatry. He says, you know, if you uh, look at what do these four things have in common? Well, these are all things that you might encounter in the context of an idol's temple. Um, food offered to idols, obviously you would see that in an idol temple. Uh, sexual immorality, a lot of these temples had cult prostitution, uh, things like that going on. Strangled things, well, that, that one's a bit hard to fit into this paradigm, but, you know, it could be that maybe some, some pagan cults practiced strangling their, their sacrificial victims. So it would, uh, we don't really have any evidence for that, but uh, that's been proposed by some people. Uh, and then blood, well, uh, of course, there's going to be a lot of blood around a temple where they're slaughtering animals. Of course, not if they're strangling them, that kind of would get rid of the blood. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, these, it's been argued that these all have to do with an idol temple. As you can see from the way I'm interacting with this viewpoint, I'm not convinced that this is the case. If the apostles had simply wanted to make sure that these believers were not participating in idolatry in any form, why didn't they just say, don't participate in idolatry in any form? Why did they come up with this strange list of rules? And, and especially strangled things, that, that really doesn't seem to fit. Okay, so I'm going to suggest that this first interpretation is not... Um, that there are some problems with it. Okay, second interpretation is that the four prohibitions represent the three cardinal sins of Judaism. Um, plus one. Because <laughs> we have four prohibitions and there's only three cardinal sins. So that's, that's a little, uh, little tricky to get around. But th there, are, there are some manuscripts from the Western text tradition that don't include the reference to strangled things. That, that, that one is missing. So then what do you have left? You have food offered to idols, sexual immorality, and blood. Maybe you could interpret this as bloodshed, talking about killing people. Uh, well, these are the three cardinal sins of Judaism, idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder. Uh, in at least this is, of course, in much later rabbinic Judaism, it is suggested that it is permissible to break any commandment for the sake of life, except for three, sexual immorality, idolatry, and murder. And those are considered the cardinal sins, right? Uh, so that's, that's one possibility. And so people say, well, this, this is basically then a a really succinct moral code for Gentiles. Um, the apostles wanted to be, okay, what's the irreducible minimum set of rules that we could make up for these Gentiles? And they came up with these, these three things. And then somehow this strangled things got thrown into the mix there. <laughs> Again, that, those strangled things just keep throwing a wrench in all these theories. Uh, those who've done the textual analysis, I'm not going to go into the details here, but they argue that, no, this is original. 
strangled things belong in the list. And that makes it very unlikely that we're dealing with the three cardinal sins. Uh, a third proposal is that these laws are derived from the Noahide laws. We're going to have to, I don't think we'll get to that tonight. I think in part two, we'll have to delve into that more. Um, because this this is a significant one. This this the Noahide laws theory has been quite influential. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the Noahide laws, in rabbinic literature they talk about how there are these laws that were supposedly given to Noah and his sons that are that are binding on all the sons of Noah. And the at least some of the rabbis came up with seven seven Noahide laws. There's other enumerations. Um, some people say there's 30 Noahide laws, others, others have different numbers. Anyway, uh, so there's, we'll just for the sake of argument assume there's seven Noahide laws. And some scholars have noticed an interesting similarity between the four prohibitions here and some of the Noahide laws. Uh, we'll have to look at that in more detail another time. There are, again, some problems with this, this uh, interpretation, but uh, that's something that we're going to have to look at in more detail. Because um, it actually goes, uh, it's, it's a quite involved argument that, and a lot of, uh, this, this argument has made, it way, it's made its way into a lot of messianic circles as well. So um, we're going to have to take it seriously and, and look more closely at it. But I'm going to suggest that there are problems with that interpretation as well. Okay, the fourth proposal is that these four prohibitions are the Torah's laws for sojourners. It just so happens if you look at Leviticus 17 and 18, you see um, uh, the Torah says these are... Uh, it gives commandments, and for each of these commandments, it says this is for both the native and the stranger who sojourns among you. And it just so happens that these four rules can be found in Leviticus 17 to 18. So some scholars are going to say this is it. This is the, the connection. Here's, uh, let's, let's take a look at that in a little more detail. Because I'm going to say that this is, this is partially correct, but there's also some problems with the way this, this position is usually articulated. If the four prohibitions come from Leviticus 17 to 18, well, why, why would the apostles have selected just the, these four laws from the Torah? Out of all the commandments in Torah, why these four? Well, here's what uh, one New Testament scholar uh, has to say about it. He says, what links these four prohibitions together and at the same time distinguishes them from all the other ritual requirements of Moses is that they, and only they, are, are given not only to Israel, but also to strangers dwelling among the Jews. Whereas in other respects, the law applies solely to the Jews. It imposes these four prohibitions on Gentiles also. Okay, so this guy, uh, Ernst Henchen, He's, gonna, he's, he's suggesting that if you go through the whole Torah and look at 
all the commandments and make a, make a list of all the commandments in the Torah, which elsewhere he says you could never do. There's no way, there's too many commandments of the Torah. It's too hard to keep. You'd never be able to make a list of all the commandments. But anyway, for the sake of argument, if you could make a list of all the commandments, which I think is quite doable, um, contra Henkin, he's going to say all of the commandments apply only to Jews except for these four. These are the only four ritual commandments in the Torah that the Torah says apply both to Jews and to Gentiles. This position has become very popular, and a lot of scholars have parroted what Henkin says. We see this in Yerville, we see this in um, other scholars. Uh, Richard Bauckham has uh, taken on a, a slightly modified version of this thesis. Um, even Mark Kinzer argues for a similar position. Uh, and so, so, so yeah, uh, that's, that's the, the way they see it. The biggest problem with that, of course, is uh, when you make such a list of commandments, there are many, many, many other commandments that the Torah also explicitly applies to sojourners. Here's the list. Um, I went ahead and did that for us and made a list of all the, all the places in the Torah where it explicitly says this commandment applies to the sojourner as well. Okay, so it explicitly says that about the Sabbath, uh, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, the Prohibition Against Sacrificing Outside the Sanctuary, the Prohibition Against Offering Blemish Sacrifices, the permission to offer voluntary sacrifices, such as burnt offerings, inclusion in the forgiveness accrued through a communal sin offering, requirement to offer personal sin offerings, the prohibition against eating blood, the command to pour out the blood of a hunted animal, impurity that comes from eating um, animals found dead or torn, the laws of corpse defilement and cleansing, the prohibition of sexual sins, the prohibition of offering one seed to Moloch, prohibition against blasphemy, culpability for intentional sin, the laws of lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, the commandment to treat Israelite slaves kindly, to reserve for them the right of redemption and to re release them in the Jubilee. It applies not just to, Jew to Israelites, but also to non-Israelite sojourners. The right to asylum in a city of refuge, the right to receive the third year tithe alongside other landless groups, and the right to receive the first fruits alongside Levites. So uh, just from this list alone, we can see that the apostles left out a lot of commandments. If their goal was to make a list of all the commandments that apply to sojourners, they missed a bunch. And so did Henchen. Uh, so did these New Testament scholars. What's more, there are five places where the Torah explicitly states that there shall be one Torah that applies to both the native and the stranger who sojourns among you. Uh, these passages imply, and I argue this in more detail in my thesis, so if you don't find this convincing here in this session, you can read my thesis and then tell me what you think. Um, these passages suggest that the entire Torah applies to sojourners, to non-Israelite sojourners, just as much as to the native-born. And uh, so it's not just, you know, we shouldn't be looking at, oh, does this commandment say it applies to the sojourner? If it doesn't say that explicitly, then it must not. In my opinion, that's a faulty interpretation. Um, 
we should understand the entire Torah as applying to both native and, and sojourner. More to the point, nowhere in the Torah does it offer a separate list of commandments for sojourners, right? There, there, is, no, there is no separate or smaller list of commandments that apply to non-Israelites as opposed to the commandments that apply to only Israelites. I'm going against what uh, a number of major scholars have said, uh, but in my opinion, they just have not, uh, they leave out part of the evidence when they claim that, oh, well, the Torah itself differentiates in, um, you know, which, what, what applies to Israelites and what applies to non-Israelites. I don't think that's the case. Uh, there, there is a distinction between Israelite and non-Israelite, but that distinction is not made in terms of how much Torah they're supposed to, uh, to do. All right. Um, one last thing I want to delve into before we wrap it up here for tonight. I do believe that the four prohibitions come from Leviticus 17 and 18. Um, let's take a closer look at that. Okay, if we go down to Leviticus 17, verse 8. Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourns among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Actually, if we back up a bit, it uh, makes it more explicit here. Um, this is so that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field and may bring them to the Lord the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as peace offerings and the priest shall throw the blood on the altar um, so that they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. What's, what's interesting here is that, uh, and uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians uh, 10. He talks about how what the Pagans offer to their idols, the sacrifices that they offer to their idols are offered to demons, right? This was a common early Jewish understanding of how sacrifices and idolatry worked. Idolaters offer their sacrifices to demons. So this passage here to a first century Jew could be understood as saying, uh, not to eat offer, food offered to idols, uh, not to partake of the sacrifices that are offered to idols. Okay. Um, by the way, Paul talks a lot about food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. And a lot of scholars assume that Paul didn't really care whether or not you eat it. He figured, you know, we can eat, we can eat it if we want. I think that interpretation of 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 is mistaken. Um, I think a close reading of that text demonstrates that Paul was very much opposed to eating something that was known to be idol food, food that was known to have been offered to an idol. Paul categorically prohibits in those chapters, but that's a, a rabbit trail for another time. Uh, anyway, the point is here we have the basis for a 
commandment against food offered to idols. Let's jump down a bit. Then we get this commandment about not eating blood. Anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who eats blood, um, that's bad, right? Goes on, no person among you shall eat blood. So we've got idol food, blood, and now we get this other commandment here. Any one of the people of Israel or strangers who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth, uh, and you shall not eat the blood of any creature. And any person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts. These are two Hebrew words here. The word nevelah and the word terefa. So nevelah is is a carcass, an animal carcass. You find something dead. Um, Trefa is something that has been mortally wounded. It's, it's still alive, but it's got, uh, you know, it's been eaten and or, or torn up. And so you, you need to slaughter it because it's just going to die anyway. These two things you're not allowed to eat, right? In, um, I don't have time to go into this in detail, but in other Jewish writings, these these terms for those things that have not been uh, that were found dead or that were uh, wounded and have not been slaughtered properly, these are summed up as strangled things. So there's been a lot of debate about what exactly it means in Acts 15 when it says to avoid strangled things. Well, uh, I believe a compelling case can be made that it's talking about specifically these Torah categories of nevela and trefa. Nevela and Trefa are what is being referred to in Acts 15.20. In Greek, it uses the word pniktos, things strangled, ketupniktu. Uh, Here it's in the genitive case. Uh, so pniktos is, um, or pnikton, is talking about Nevela and Trefa. And then... Finally, in chapter 18, it's a long chapter, but it goes through in, in detail these uh, the laws of sexual purity, right? There are these sexual, um, sexual immorality, things that defile the land and that are forbidden, right? Um, adultery and fortication and uh, incest and homosexuality, um, things like that. Okay, so what's interesting is that uh, not only the content of the four prohibitions, oops, didn't mean to do that, uh, not only the content, but even the order of the four prohibitions, if you look at it, not the first time it appears in Acts, but in the next two times it appears. So if we jump down to um, Acts 15, 29, you abstain from what has been offered to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That's the exact same order that they appear in Leviticus 17 and 18. If you jump down to Acts, 5, Acts chapter 21, when the four prohibitions appear again, they appear in the same order. I think that's too conspicuous to be just a coincidence. I think that there's, uh, that these four rules are intentionally drawn from uh, Leviticus 17 and 18. Why? 
why are they drawn from there? It's one thing to say that this is where they come from. This is their source. But why did the apostles choose those four laws of the Torah? Out of all the laws of the Torah, why those four? Um, it's obviously not just because these are laws that apply to sojourners, since, as I've said, I believe the whole Torah applies to sojourners. But the apostles chose from the very heart of the Torah. I mean, here we're... we're very close to the the middle point of the Torah, Leviticus 17 and 18. And they chose commandments from the very heart of the Torah to represent uh, that which they want the Gentiles to keep. Why? We're going to have to answer that question next time. So this is a to be continued. Hope you'll Tune in next time for the next session of our series on Lucas. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.